Mini episode 1524 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. I'm going to br- bring up another name here, too, as I go back to the last part before what I wanted to get to to unpack of what you were saying and the talk about Colt Cabana because... All roads lead back to Cold Cabana in this. If you're saying there was tension between CM Punk and the Elite from day one, then it could only be because of Cold Cabana, because he's one of their boys. And this is one of the things here, too. And I will say, and I have fondness for Jim Cornette. He's been on the show twice. I've had fun interviewing him. I'd love to again. But, like, approximately 110% of people in the cult uh, the cult of Cornette are troglodytes, okay? I, I don't have really any respect for any of the people who just... Love to hate on modern wrestling. Oh, we're so much better back then. Or, uh, any of his fans with the whole rose-colored glasses about the past and everything today sucks. Uh, th- those p- those people can go uh, sit on a frog or whatever. But I, I will say this. <laughs> wait, wait, the funny thing. I'm sorry, but this made me chuckle. Or or um or uh, Rick Morris's view of WWE up until six months ago. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> everything, uh, everything modern sucks. Well, every, everything in WWE until Vince left. You're right. I wasn't. I wasn't giving them another chance until Vince left. But show me in the last several years why I should have out of what they were doing. But uh, you know, yeah, no, I'm I'm taking them a little more seriously now. Although now this talk that Roman is going to have both belts until past next year's WrestleMania, I'm already scaling back watching them again. So you know, it it goes in cycles here, I, I guess. But uh, right. as, anyway, your 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 rant on on the cult. Yes, the cult. And, and these people going off on this and all, they're like, oh, how are you going to let Colt Cabana ruin your business here? How are you going to let somebody as insignificant as Colt Cabana stand in the way of this thing? I go back to what I said before about the pioneers and the people who laid the groundwork for AEW to even exist. The Young Bucks are very, very important in this regard as far as being people who helped revolutionize do-it-yourself marketing and everything like that. And they learned a lot of what they know from Colt Cabana. I mean, CM Punk will have you believe that everything Colt Cabana ever achieved was off of his back with the one podcast that he got the notoriety for, where Punk went on there. By the way, I I never heard about Colt Cabana putting a gun to Punk's head and telling him to say all these ill-advised things. Uh, Not that I didn't enjoy listening to it at the time, because I was sucking it up with a ladle like everybody else was. But yeah, it turned out to be consequences attached to that. The reason it was so enthralling and compelling is because, wow, there's usually consequences when somebody goes on a rant like this, and there turned out to be. And one of those consequences was those two men ended up hating each other, ended up at each other's throats legally, and CM Punk will have you believe with revisionist history, that's the only thing Colt Cabana ever did in his life. That's not true. Colt Cabana being one of the first wrestlers, if not the first, to really get seriously into podcasting, marketing himself, whatever. He helped lay the groundwork more indirectly than the Bucks and Omega, 
but he helped lay the groundwork for AEW to even exist. And having some institutional loyalty to somebody in that regard is not a bad thing. So I think Tony Khan did the right thing moving him to ROH, because let's face it, you, what you said before was correct. He wasn't bringing value to AEW in his on-screen role as a, back, a backup member of the uh, Dark Order. ROH, he's a legacy guy. You need to take as many legacy guys from ROH that you have in AEW that aren't needed in AEW and move them over there to help this generation of ROH guys mean something when they really get going again. So that part of it made sense. What's interesting in all of this is Tony Khan's account of the story of moving him there is that it's a decision he made himself. It's a thing where that's probably not the whole truth, Jake Digman, because it's a decision he made himself. But if he really thought it was feasible to have these two guys in the same locker room, and like you said, uh, you know, Colt Cabana what has not been prominent on screen since CM Punk got here, or even before CM Punk got here. But they're in the same locker room. It's not about what you see on camera. It's about backstage. And you can only keep two guys who hate each other so separate if they're booked on a lot of the same shows. So having them in the same place at the same time was going to be awkward. And there's, there's very little doubt in my head that CM Punk had something to do with it, even if it wasn't directly. I'll believe him when he says it. If he says, I never told Tony Khan to get rid of him, well, he at least kept making it clear how much he hated Colt Cabana, and Tony Khan is going to try and minimize whatever shite storm he can out of that. So there, some of that obviously could have been handled better by Tony, as he says, in terms of the communications and everything like this. But this whole thing where the cult of Cornette troglodytes want to go out there and just do the, the, the whole kind of mouth-breather thing like they always do, and just because they don't like Cabana and they think that he represents the, the extremes of modern wrestling with the silliness and everything like that. But to act like this guy has no place in AEW uh, is so far off the mark, uh, much like any of the rest of their stuff that they usually say it shouldn't even have to be addressed. Oh, I mean, you know this back in the day. I watched, uh, I, I watched old, old school uh, Ring of Honor Colt Cabana with you. Yeah. I, you know, I, I have, you know, I, um, I was a huge fan of Matt Classic. You know, he uh, has for what he's done, and you know, um, being pioneers in the podcast world. Yeah, absolutely. I just think of you that even before Punk got there. They weren't doing anything with him, like like we had stated, and right. it just comes to a point where guys you know, or where their contracts come up, whatever. It's like, hey, at the end of the day, nothing's a freeloader, you right. know. I mean, Marco Stunt were part of the guys that got let go, and I mean, Peter Avalon originally was, and he ended up finding his way back. Right. You know, everything is everything is cyclical like that. Right. Um, and then the opportunity came up where you know Tony Khan buys Ring of Honor. Colt Cabana is an absolute perfect signing to put in there. Yes. When you think of the names that you have on that roster that are associated with Ring of Honor, the, we can dare we say the best part of Colt Cabana's career was his time in Ring of Honor. By far, like ninety percent of it. <laughs> By far, yeah. yeah. And so it's like he's uh, someone who's associated and you know recognizable with the brand, and he absolutely he absolutely made the right call. I'm not, yeah, I don't agree with here with, with the whole idea. Oh, he should be fired or let go, right. um, Because this guy doesn't like this guy or whatever. Right. It's like, dude, be an adult, right? At the end of the day, it's like you do okay for, for uh, the, the the CM Punk side of this and the uh, the members of the cult who, or let's quite frankly, you know, he he, he can do no wrong right. in some ways. But at the same time, it's like, man, yes and no. I respect the fact that you know that he is looking out for his brand at the end of the day because that's who he is. 
but also at the same time, at what cost does it come to? If it was Jim Cornette sitting in that chair next to him, do you think he'd have done that? Yeah, no <laughs> way. Does that scrum? No. And if he just takes Tony, Tony Khan and put in Cornette or whomever, oh, those people would have lost their mind. Right. You know? And I, it, it's one of those where, yeah, ego. Right. Everything, but everything involved in all of this, all of it comes down to is everybody's ego. Right. And in order for anybody, any business to succeed, you have to check your ego at the door. Right. And until everybody, and I mean everyone involved in the situation, checks their ego at the door, nothing. You know, you're just going to have this, and, it, and it's which is very, very unfortunate. Now, the very unfortunate side of this was the reaction that happened after the fact that I do have to give a, a little bit of a shout out here, though. Has anybody had a more compelling three-week time period than Ace Steel? I had no yeah. idea that Ace Steel was even working for AEW until he showed up on TV. Yeah. He goes out there, drops an F-bomb on <laughs> national television, and then beats up the executive vice president of the company. And bites what? one of them. Yeah. <laughs> bites one of them. A chair at the eye of one chair, of them. Does a chair at the eye of another one? It's just like, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Holy, like, wow. You talk about a. That might be the best run of his. That might be the best run of his career. That guy went ham. He absolutely did. Here's the funny thing, though, is like, and this is what's so. One of the things that's great about wrestling in a situation like this, and this is where. I'm not going to be like the overly dramatic people comparing this to WCW in the final stages, but it is kind of the same thing, right? Because like you, you had Hogan's click, you had uh, Hall and Nash's click backstage, Flair's group. I, I think uh, Sting and Luger were, I think, politically unaffiliated for the no, most we, part. We, we, we learned from the the A and E documentary, Luger was just high. Well, yeah, basically, and uh, this is one of these things where. You can kind of do the same thing here. And it's interesting for me as I look in that locker room to see the different connections and stuff because I would think you mentioned William Regal before. And that is somebody where that is somebody that the reason you cited him is the same reason. I'm going to put him over here. That man is the essence of professionalism, of how things should be done in this biz. That's why he's in the on-screen role that he's in, like some of the other on-screen roles he's had over a period of time, why he's worked backstage doing the things that he's done. So you would think of this as like, out of all of this, I'm sure he's not at all sympathetic to everything that happened with Punk and the way that Punk buried Tony Khan and whatever. And then it's funny, you come to realize, because I looked on Wikipedia, I think it was Wikipedia with Ace Steel. You know who one of his trainers is? William Regal. How about that? So it's like, so William Regal has some kind of connection to Ace Steel. Now, I don't know if they're still good buddies or not, but it's like, it's just fascinating because it's one of these things like you think you know, right? And these people in the locker room that you haven't heard what their thoughts are, you think you know what they might be based on what you think you know about them. And then you come to find out they have a connection to somebody else that you never had any idea about. And that's one of the fascinating things about wrestling and the whole Kremlinology of it, trying to figure out like who's on whose side and everything like that. But the whole backstage thing, it was just uh, that that brawl was good for all of the jokes about you know did the Bucks you know slap their thighs before super kicking the doors and you know all these other things you know was 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 Cutler hitting them with a the spray bottle when they got knocked yeah. out you know that's, that's what I just imagined is I'm gonna get to hit the head of the chair and him spray 
drags him down to the can. Brandon, stop it! <laughs> I mean, and also, too, talk, talk about breaking character. Cutler wasn't running uh, the film on any of this stuff. I mean, you know, how, do you, how are you not running film on any of this? And now, again, the whole thing here about the initial thing that Punk's side was putting out about, oh, they busted down our door or whatever, which... You know, there were people that came out with knowledge of the facilities and were like, in a building like that, it's not real easy to super kick a door down or whatever. Those are heavy doors. And it turns out, and I should know the woman's name, but I don't, the one that's number two in the company, the lawyer, very powerful lawyer type, she apparently was with the Bucks. Mega something? Yes, Mega. Uh, she went there with them and apparently was part of the entourage. She witnessed the whole thing. By the way... The, the, the whole thing of, like, MJF as a neutral party having witnessed all of this is f endlessly fascinating to me. We're going to need an ESPN 30 for 30 on that angle of it alone someday. But, uh, you know, Mega was there, so it's like them being there as executives, I'm sure they didn't handle it the right way as far as being in a confrontational kind of a tone. That said, Punk was in the whole mode of, like, well, anybody that's got a problem with it can come talk to me. You know, it's the same thing that he had said previously, about if anybody ever had an issue with anything. So, I mean, they were just taking him at his word. I'm not going to defend what their posture almost certainly was, but the thing that was just also hilarious to in this to me is from having seen quote-unquote out-of-character interviews with him, Kenny Omega seems to be like a very chill uh, individual. And so, like, the notion of him being there, like, I can totally believe and He's an animal lover, I believe. So, like, going for Larry the dog and wanting to get him out of the way rings true with, again, what we think we know about him and everything like right. that. And then ending up getting bitten because, again, he's trying to break it up, but Ace Steel thinks that he's attacking, he's putting him in a cross face and everything like that. And it's like, how much PCP did Ace Steel have to be on, allegedly, to think that, like, Kenny Omega, of all people, is going to be going ham on anybody in this situation? Like, I, I just... Wouldn't that be one of the last guys that you'd be too worried about? Like, oh, Omega's there. This thing's going to escalate the World War III in like five seconds. I, I don't know. And again, maybe I'm showing that I think I know more about Omega than I do, but it's like none of that rings true from anything I've ever heard or observed about him in real life. Kenny Omega, I'm going to put something, uh, I guess I'm going to, Kenny Omega reminds me a little bit, not that he does this, I'm not saying that he, that he would, but he reminds me of the guy that would be like, off camera, I guess, reminds me of the guy, let's say, you know, you were, uh, went with your buddies to pick up some um, quote-unquote self-medicating herbal medicine. <laughs> he reminds me of the guy that would be hanging out with that guy. That's just chilling. <laughs> 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 just like, you know, say, yeah. That's just kind of like, you know, just like, oh, man, and then just tells you this really interesting story about some kind of like, you know, the certain uh, type of tree that only grows in this one forest in Japan for like, you know, two weeks out of the year. You're so fascinated by it going like, oh, okay, wow. Yeah, it's like, yeah, man, you should really check it out. It's good, it's good stuff. And you're like, how does he know this stuff? Yeah, yeah, how do you know this, you know? Like, oh, talk of like pre, like, you know, Google days. Like, how do you know these things? <laughs> kind of like, this is kind of the vibe I get of like, you know, just based on everything I've seen and you know, his, uh, his demeanor, and, you know, and I guess you say out of character interviews. So yeah, he is a, he's a self-professed pacifist. Yes. Yes. Like <laughs> Jake, I, I'm going to tell you right now, this would be one of my five favorite moments in the history of the show. If I stumble across a shoot interview or something someday 
where Omega mentions that he stumbled across this podcast and heard your description of him and was so tickled by it. That would be one of our top five moments ever, Jake. Oh, well, I hope we got to make that happen then. Yes, yes. I... And it was in that moment that Jake David and Kenny Omega became best friends and went to hang out and I'm not going to do it. we got to get that audio in front of Omega somehow. I would just love to hear his reaction to how you described him because he... You know, I, I'm guessing, and again, we're acting like we, we know the guy, but I'm guessing he would nod his head and be like, yeah, fair enough. I, I guess I am that guy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that Jake Digman's pretty insightful. What do you know? You know, I need to know this guy better. But, uh, you know, like, of, of all people that Ace Steel thought was going to be, you know, escalating the situation, and again, all these people being there, again, Pat Buck, you know, Nakazawa, all of them, I mean, common sense tells you right, that like most of them were trying to be in a de-escalate role there as opposed to part of a lynch mob on CM Punk. And that's how it's played out, that they've gotten de-suspended over a period of time. But you had speculated about that we've seen the last of CM Punk in AEW, and I've seen it said, and this would be, again, this this is a real put-your-money-where-your-mouth-is kind of a situation, because for as much as CM Punk likes to talk about doing business and everything like that, here is, he he has the, uh, he has a chance to rewrite his legacy one more time, one time in a definitive way to show that he has learned all of the lessons in his career and found how to maximize it in a way to everybody's benefit, is the time when he comes back, let, 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 let's say it's the beginning of the show and the lights are out in the arena and the lights come on at the beginning of the show and it's him and Ace or him and whoever, him and FTR, brawling with the elite, okay? If you bring them back that way, all right, and they do business together, that would show. At this point, CM Punk, if he doesn't want to go down as as one of the biggest disappointments relative to what he could have been in wrestling history, it's going to take something like that because... You know, it's so funny that, like, he looks at it like he's bred in 97. He's always bred in 97. He's always the put-upon guy. Really? You kind of look like Sean in 97 to me. Because aren't you the guy saying, I'm never going to job to Hangman Adam Page after what he said about me? I mean, he just, he, he thinks he's Brett, but he he's old-school Sean is is what he is. And, and he's also, you talk about lack of, you know, self-reflection and whatever. You know who else he is? He's Tony Atlas circa 05. He tells this story about how Tony Atlas put him down in the locker room for having the tape on his arms and the X on it. Why do you do that? That's stupid looking. You know, these old guys don't listen to anybody. Well, you've become Tony Atlas from back then. And I'm going to go a step further even. I'm, I'm going way down this rabbit hole. You know who Tony Atlas could sit down and tell him about? Tony Atlas could sit down and tell him about a guy that he saw get stabbed to death, Bruiser Brody who's another guy who inflamed promoters a lot up and down the road. Didn't deserve to have what happened to him, by the way. But Bruiser Brody was the scourge of wrestling promoters back in the day. He stood up for himself. He was a true renegade business-wise. And Jose Gonzalez made him pay for it in his life on a locker room floor, uh, shower floor, in uh, Puerto Rico in 1988. And, uh, you know, Tony Atlas, if he was to have another conversation with him, might say, you're lucky Tony Khan is a nicer guy than Jose Gonzalez. Dang, that's pretty deep. How about that? <laughs> I went, I went way down a rabbit hole, didn't I? You went way down, you went way down that rabbit hole. Yes. Yeah. Um. I mean, I, I thankfully 
we don't live in a society anymore, I would like to think, where, you know, right. people are getting stabbed, but right. for safekeeping, Punk might not want to book himself in Puerto Rico. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah. I don't even wish that on Punk, because Jose Gonzalez should burn in hell for the rest of his life for what he did. Bruiser Brody is somebody that's a hero of mine. I hate what happened to him. But it's one of those things where, again... Punk embraces this renegade image. I'm a renegade in this business. I don't let promoters, you know, steamroll over me, whatever. Bruiser Brody paid the price in the worst way possible. CM Punk is going to retire when he does, if this is it, a very rich man. But he's also a man who, you can tell, he thinks about his own legacy. He's got an ego. He was fully on display at that press conference, and when he's always talking about how much money other people are making off of him. And whether it's Bruiser Brody getting unfairly stabbed to death by some scumbag promoter, or whether it's just, you know, not being everything you can be in the history books like CM Punk, there are prices to be paid for being a renegade. And there's one thing, Bruiser Brody, from what I know, it was always in a principled way, or... Most of the time. I mean, Lex Luger might have some questions. I'll have to ask Lex when and if the next time he's on the show if he thought Bruiser was always principled and how he handled his differences. But most of the time he probably was. He certainly didn't deserve to get stabbed over it. But I mean, CM Punk, this is a thing where this, this, is, this is your acid test in history, I feel like. If you're willing to come back and make money off of this thing, then you are everything that you said you are as far as somebody who's willing to just go out there, do business, try to make the best business possible, because it would be red hot. I mean, turning this into an angle, and for all the idiots out there, for all the, the troglodytes that think this is a work all the way along, even though it buried the shoot-turned-work of the MV, uh, MJF thing and him coming back, uh, yeah, that, let's, let's, let's do another... Let's do another uh, work to, to bury this other thing here. But anyways, if they can turn this into business, then I will swallow a lot of what I said about CM Punk and just him being a bitter guy. But that's... I mean, at the end of the day, that's what needs to happen. Yeah. There, there, needs to be, there needs to be some humility involved in all yes, of this. Yes, absolutely. Because right now it's severely lacking. And, you know, um, <laughs> um, to borrow a phrase, not everything is about you. Yes, that's true. That's true, and that's something that he needs to hear and maybe some others need to hear in this thing. And That's the thing, too. I mean, and, and also, again, for all of this stuff here, so many people taking it on faith about uh, the elite having leaked uh, the, uh, the, the accounts of CM Punk trying to get Cabana fired, although, again, for what it's worth, Sean Ross Sapp and Meltzer and Alvarez have denied that, that they got it leaked from them now. Uh, again, you, you made a funny joke off air about, uh, you know, hey, Cutler, go call Meltzer and, you know, let him know this. I mean, anything's possible. Anything's possible. Oh, no, no, they, didn't, they didn't tell him to go call him. He was just sitting, I'd like to think he was sitting in the other room with a cup up to the, to the, uh, a cup up to the door listening in. Yeah, but it's like, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, again, when we look at how aggrieved they were after that press conference, there's at least a chance, Jake Digman, that they didn't have anything to do with this. And and Meltzer is saying that the locker room sort of writ large, I don't know if it's a majority of the locker room, but a significant part of it didn't like a lot of the stuff that CM Punk was doing, and perhaps in regards to his vendetta towards Colt Cabana. So if the elite is paying the price for what was a more widespread feeling in the locker room, I can understand where they'd be looking at it like, hey, 
well, why do we have to get thrown under the bus here? We might have felt that way, but we didn't leak it, and other people are feeling it too, although perhaps that comes back to your point about the whole thing of when you are front office as well as being the boys, of where there is going to be that perception there and it's unavoidable. Um, pretty much, yeah, I think that's, it is. It's unavoidable when you have a, a situation where you're, no matter what it is, when you're in a position of power, no matter what you're doing, that's where the buck stops and people, no pun intended. Yeah. That's where, you know, people, uh, that's where they point their finger at. And, you know, that's why there are supervisor, supervisor positions in all lines of business. And if something doesn't get done, someone has to be held accountable. And it's, it's you know, under the their watch or if the actions they have done, like I said to you off air, I say don't take away their positions that they're, they're good at that you, you, you wonderfully enlightened me on. But at the same time, if it was, uh, you know, Joe, Bob, and Ted that were the EVPs and like he was talking about Joe, Bob, and Ted who weren't wrestlers and they went in there, I guarantee you they wouldn't be working there the next day. Well, you know, you know, yeah. Clarify the flow chart because I don't right. I, with the with the exception of some of the tag teams where they are doing some agenting, I don't believe they're the boss of anybody, nor have they been since maybe the very early days of the promotion. So just clarify the flow chart, okay? That they're not above anybody on the flow chart there, and what they're doing is separate business type stuff. And which by the way, I mean, and that's a thing where uh, listen, ECW did this to great effect. They did it because they had to, because they were such a small shop. But, like, well, I mean, wasn't Taz doing t-shirt design, and Dreamer was helping promote yeah. with the buildings and stuff like that? This is nothing new in yeah. wrestling. And if Tony Khan, maybe the next locker room meeting, he ought to be like, yo, if any of you does anything that might be of help to us, that you might want to get hired to do that extra, like, I, I think that could be fine. But again, just so long as it doesn't put anybody above the flow chart of anybody else there, because that's where you lead to these conflict of interest questions. Exactly. And, you know, that's where we end up in a situation like where somebody gets bit and a chair gets put in their face. <laughs> Nobody wants that. This is all bad. Why can't we just talk things out first? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it ended up being one of the most fascinating things to happen in a long time. I mean, the whole notion of, you know, history repeating itself, I mean, uh, you know, when you look at world affairs, uh, the Queen Elizabeth passing just a couple days after 25 years after uh, uh, Princess Diana, that's kind of weird as far as how close on the calendar those came together. And this is like the most Montreal 97 type thing I think we've had since then, right? I can't think of anything in the business. I'm not, that's a bigger thing historically. This is, st this is still not on the same level historically until some more dominoes fall. But it's like for all of the weirdness of that last year of Brett and Sean culminating in Montreal, like have we have we had anything like this to this point exactly twenty five years later? I can't think of anything. I off the top of my head, no. <laughs> well, I guess you know Vince leaving. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's big, that's big. But that's it's not the dynamic though of him and another wrestler and a rivalry that got out of control. And this is more than one wrestler, although I guess if you're going to you know, drill it down to two, I guess it would be Paige and Punk in this. But, I mean, Paige wasn't even a part of the brawl. It was the Jackson brothers and then also Omega and everybody else. So the whole factionalism in the locker room and everything, yeah, it's just it's a really, really weird place. You know, we'll look to see what happens. And it, uh, it overshadows what has been uh, 
a pretty good couple of weeks for the product. We go into Arthur Ashe next week, Moxley and Danielson for the vacant world title. You can't ask for much more than that. Uh, the acclaimed could be getting the world titles in front of a hometown crowd. It's a shame that this stuff's still being overshadowed a bit by all of this crap. Yeah, but you know what? That's one thing that AEW has shown that they can, like, especially the guys, they can deliver when when the opportunity is there and they have to. And there's so much great talent on this upcoming card that I I, I firmly believe that they're going to deliver. And my only thing is like, how does MJF walk out with the belt? That's just what I'm wondering. Because, like, that's the next logical guy if you want to turn things on a spin. I mean, I, you do Danielson, which I, I think that's what I, I, I don't see Moxley because you just did that. And it would be a retreading back towards something that you need to do to maybe a step backwards. Um, but they need to get the focal point back. You just brought MJF back. That's a huge thing. That's a huge story that is, you know, that's captivating people's interest. And they need to keep the focal point on how to get to the point where, I mean, let's face it, he is their biggest homegrown star, in my in my humble opinion. That he has potential, like, you know, the breakout potential to be like, because of the way he can talk, to be a megastar. So, it's time to steer the ship back on course to what they were originally going to be heading towards. And, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for the sport of kings, for the, for the, for the grapples. Uh, I'm excited to see, you know, where this goes. And, I mean, it just leads, you know, all this backstage drama. Again, we're not there. So, for nerds like us, it gives us a chance to do podcasts like this. And it also makes, you know, for compelling television, yes. in my opinion. And I'm grateful for both of those things. And as we bring this around full circle, uh, again, AEW to this point, they have been a very, very uh, unkillable promotion. There have been things that were supposed to be the end of them before. The pandemic, they survived it. Uh, Eddie Kingston pulled them out of another very low moment. Impact built the bomb! You know, that was supposed to be the death of them, was that whole fiasco. It didn't happen. So they've had a couple moments of, like, how do they come back from this? And they have come back from it every time it's happened. This has been the biggest challenge, probably. But it's interesting what you say about Moxley, because it might be deemed to be a retread, but I think he's probably the most over of any of their top guys. And wasn't that MJF promo building towards it? Like, what was that MJF promo all about, him you know, calling Mox an alcoholic and all that other stuff if it doesn't build to a match between them. So I'm just sort of assuming at this point, with the combination of Danielson's quote-unquote injured leg, that it is going to be Mox. But, uh, you know, yeah, that's that's going to be fascinating to see how it uh, plays out. I, I, I agree with you. And, you know what, I mean, I, uh, who says that, you know, MJF doesn't say, fine, I'm having my title shot right now. I know it's a rip-off of Money in the Bank, but everything is ripped off. And we don't know what he, you know, we don't know the terms of his chip of when he can cash it in. I mean, you literally cash in a poker chip. It's just a, it's eerily similar gimmick. So I just have a feeling that the idea was eventually would be to get the, you know, the championship onto MJF. And we'll see what road they take to get there. And, I mean, if Moxie was supposed to go on vacation, as he said he was, you know, uh does he have, but then again, you know, he, he is the kind of guy that says, you know, put the company on my back, I'm going to take it, let's run with it. We, well, we, don't, we don't even know if Danielson wants to be the champion, you know? Yeah, well. We, 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 they haven't been forthcoming, you know, they've said what happened with his injuries, but we, at the end of the day, don't know just how injury prone he happens to be. So, yeah. we'll see. Well, that's, that's what makes it fun. 
That's a great point, because I've been assuming now it's going to be Mox and MJF at full gear, but they could do it with Mox as challenger. He could still get his vacation in if that was to be the case, because, yeah, it is funny that in past years, you know, the poker chip, it's been you get a date on a date, you know, the date will be set, whatever, but MJF's really been pushing hard whenever I want, so if ever it's going to be the money in the bank kind of angle to it, it could be this year plus, the way that it went where the match itself was a complete gimmick and not a serious match in any kind of a way, that is also way outside the bounds of what AEW usually does. Which, by the way, in my closing remarks here, I'm going to give them credit for that. Because I remember, this was a little over a year ago, and I think I said to you, like, they've done a whole thing of, like, we don't do disqualifications, we don't do run-ins. I'm like, they should do any of those things at least once in a blue moon. Just so it's on the table. And then, you know, like they even work the count-out gimmick into, with MJF and Captain Sean Dean, right? I think like they did it there, like the count-out of whatever. And it's like, when you use it as a tool in the right way, you don't have to be like WWE and where it's a crutch and you're doing it 20 times a week. But where I said to you, these things that we don't like, they should use them once in a blue moon as a tactic just to break it up. And they've done it. Tony Khan has been adaptable in that regard. And so you don't want to see that match become a gimmick because you make it completely like WWE. It becomes too reminiscent of James Ellsworth winning the women's money in the bank. But in this circumstance, it works for the story they're trying to tell. So if MJF gets the immediate cash in at Arthur Ashe, that is going to be nuclear heat. There's no question about it. And for all of the worry about, well, he's from New York and he's been getting over, he's been getting cheers lately. Now, he's from Long Island. He's going to be in Queens, and all he's got to do is heal on the Queens crowd and be like, none of you scumbags can hold the jock of somebody from Long Island, and he'll get booed out of there. Trust me. I'm not worried about MJF not getting nuclear heat for winning the world title there. So that could be something amazing. But uh, any other thoughts about uh, the circumstance that we're in now and where this could go, Jake Digman? Uh, no, I think we covered all of it. I'm just intrigued to see where, where things go next. You know, we, well, we, we mentioned what we talked about a year ago. I can't wait till we do this again in a year and be like, didn't see that coming. <laughs> well, you know, like you said uh, towards the uh, outset is, uh, you know, the only thing that's predictable is that nothing is predictable or however it goes, however the saying goes. But uh, it, it is uh, weird and wild at times in AEW, not the kind of weirdness and wildness that we were you know, so gaga about a year ago and so hopeful for the future. But now it's more of just like, well, let's see where this goes. Let's see if they can turn in any of this chicken shiznit into chicken salad. And like I said, Tony Khan's had a pretty good gift for doing that over a period of time and being adaptable. And he's certainly going to have to continue to be adaptable in the time ahead. No question about that. And hopefully the next TV deal is going to be a good one for them and include a carve-out for the AEW and ROH libraries and new ROH programming. We can only hope, but we'll be keeping an eye on that over a period of time. Thank you so much, as always, my good friend Jake Digman, and thank you, everybody, for checking out these many episodes of the FDH Lounge.